Welcome to Breaking Through. I'm Madeline Bell, President and CEO of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm bringing you this podcast from the iHeart Breakthrough Radio Studios in Philadelphia. May was a very special month for us at CHOP. We completed another successful Daisy Days campaign. Daisy Days has been a tradition in Philadelphia for more than 60 years. It's a month-long, community-wide show of support for our patients. It features special events, community fundraisers, and more. And it's something the community looks forward to every year. This year's Daisy Days campaign benefited sickle cell research and patient care at CHOP. Our teams are so close to making life-changing breakthroughs for patients with this very painful disease. Two of our researchers are here with me today. Dr. Stefano Ravella is developing a unique gene therapy that could cure patients who are living with sickle cell disease. And Dr. Bill Peranto is working on an approach that uses stem cell transplants to cure babies with sickle cell while they're still in the womb. Thank you both for joining me today. Dr. Ravella, so you are not from the United States, and maybe you could tell me a little bit about where you came from initially and how you made it to, to Children's Hospital. Yeah, um, I was born in Italy in a, in a city called Torino, which is in northwest of Italy, and um, I always had a passion for science. Um, my initial thought was actually studying, became an astronomer. But um, rapidly I realized that when I was in high school, that I wanted to do something that had an uh, impact on human beings. Not that, you know, astronomy or astrophysics could be very important for human, for human society in general, but I really wanted to do something that had, you know, a potential application in my, during my lifetime. I eventually enrolled in uh, biology classes and was focusing on genetics and molecular biology. I was studying uh, genes and how genes express themselves, how the genes make proteins in the cells, etc. We were probably ready to, uh, to start studying how we can use the genes to cure people. So in Italy, um, like in many other countries, sickle cell anemia and beta thalassemia are quite frequent. And, and I've always been very sensitive when I had a chance, you know, to, to see patients or, or, or learn more about the disease, um, how important and, and severe was the disease for many, for many people and patients. So then I, after I completed my studies in Italy, I looked around for a laboratory where I could eventually, you know, invest my energy in doing gene therapy. And so then I found a laboratory in New York City and where I could learn these technologies. And so roughly 20 years ago, I moved to New York City um, and I started working, you know, learning the basic of gene therapy. At that time, there was no gene transfer. The vectors were very inefficient. Um, people used to, used to tell me, you're doing something that is never going to work. Um, and, uh, you know, the skepticism was very high. But I... But I believe in technology, and you know, in general, if you think about uh, the first person that, um, that was able to fly in, in, for a few meters, and only 100 years later, we were on the moon. So I can say that we started gene therapy, and it wasn't just me, of course, many other people, but we started gene therapy probably 20, 30 years ago, and there are already clinical trials ongoing. So I think we actually been faster <laughs> than from the first plane to go to the moon. So I think it's possible. I think it's something that we can accomplish. Well, that's really inspiring because when you talk about, uh, you know, you sort of have this interest in science, uh, but then you started to, to translate that to, to gene therapy. And I like your analogy to 
you know, to other innovations like flying that, you know, perhaps with really bright people like you in your lab at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, you can you know, take us to that next level and literally fly to the moon as it, as it relates to uh, gene therapy. And that's really our hope because we see children every day at the hospital, so it must inspire you to keep moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. For me, CHOP is the perfect and slash fantastic match. The commitment and, and the level and the quality of work that I find here at CHOP is un unprecedented. I like to say that probably there's a certain level of enthusiasm from my side, no matter where I work, but the fact that I, I feel surrounded by so many uh, smart and committed people, it really makes my passion for work. It brings it to the next level because I feel that people understand, they care, and they want this to succeed. So I think it's a fantastic, uh, fantastic moment for my work and the work of other people also work on sickle cell anemia, and and it speaks very highly of CHOP. Well, the type of work you do is, I think, so inspiring to me, and uh, you've really inspired me to to help get the word out there about the importance of gene therapy, in particular for sickle cell disease and other diseases that um, have confounded us for you know, for as long as I've been around in healthcare and certainly for as long as Chop has been around. Dr. Pronto, tell me, you didn't come from another country. <laughs> where where did you grow up and how how, uh, how did you find your way to Chop? Yeah, so I, uh, so un unfortunately I'm not from Italy. I wish <laughs> I could claim I was from Italy, but, um, but I grew up in New Jersey, which is almost as good as Italy, I would argue. <laughs> um, I grew up 15, 20 minutes outside of Chop uh, in a town called Gloucester City. I was born in Camden at Cooper Hospital. Um, and, uh, I've lived in the Northeast my entire, my entire life. I ended up you know, going to medical school at Penn and, uh, during medical school, I, I got to rotate through CHOP. It is, it was such an, uh, even as a medical student, it's, it's an inspirational place. And then the more involved you get in, 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 in the more involved in the institution you become, the more impressed you become with it. Well, we're lucky to have you um, <laughs> and somebody who's passionate about um, curing sickle cell disease. Dr. Ravella, your research focuses on gene therapy for sickle cell disease. Before we talk about gene therapy, can you tell me a little bit about sickle cell disease? So sickle cell disease is an inherited form of anemia, um, which is uh, associated with uh, production of abnormal red cells. So red cells normally are those cells in our body that brings oxygen to all, to all our organs, every single cell in our body. So sickle cell anemia is characterized by a mutation in a gene called the beta globin gene. When this mutation is present, the, uh, this protein is part of a larger molecule called hemoglobin. Basically creates an abnormal molecule. This molecule becomes very stiff. And the red cells that normally are round and flexible became very, very rigid. As a consequence, these red cells are moving through the body and they can be stopped and stuck in, certain, in, in, a, in, a, in some vessels. And this can lead to a variety of consequences that can be very uh, uh, severe for the patients. First of all, these cells may have a, um, a short lifespan and so their patients are anemic, so they don't have enough red cells, they, don't cons they, don't, they cannot get enough oxygen or whatever oxygen is required for a body to survive well. But it comes with additional consequences like pain, organ damage. Um, the cells can get stuck in, in many organs and inducing a damage in the organs. For instance, they get stuck in the brain, they can lead to stroke. 
and this can lead to damage in the brain of these babies, of these uh, adults, and, and many other consequences that can be, um, cannot be prevented by any uh, current therapies. They can, we can only delay or um, dilute the problems, and so we are really looking for something that can be corrective and provide a definitive cure for these patients. So you told me a little bit about the sickle cell disease. It's very painful. It's a lifetime disease. I know many children who have sickle cell end up in the hospital emergency department. They're admitted to the hospital. It really disrupts their life, um, especially as children going to school. And But it's a lifelong disease. And so I know that you're working on a cure for this lifelong disease. And I remember the first time that I met you, I remember you saying that sickle cell could be so curable because it's one gene with one mutation. And you're a gene therapy researcher. So tell me a little bit about um, gene therapy in the best layman's terms you can and, and what you're doing to combine your gene therapy skills to hopefully help us cure sickle cell disease one yeah. day. Currently, it's possible to cure uh, a few patients with sickle cell anemia by bone marrow transplant. However, um, this is a very limited um, uh, procedure because you need to find a compatible bone marrow donor, which is not always possible. Actually, there are very few donors for each patient that we have. And for all the patients, we, we actually are affected by sickle cell anemia. And, and since it's bone marrow is from a different person, the infusion is not always followed by um, beneficial effect. There are potential side effects and major consequences. So the gene therapy approach that we are developing um, take us, takes advantage of the fact that we will use the bone marrow of the patient itself. So there will not be a rejection of the bone marrow because it will be pretty much the same uh, cells from the same body of the, you know, that need to be treated. However, the difference is that we would like to introduce in these cells and the corrected form of the gene. And so the approach is to use a virus. So viruses are particles or elements that have been associated with humankind forever, and, but they always been utilized in a selfish way. So a virus basically infects your body, and the goal is to reproduce and eventually move again to, an, to a new person and, and spread this, you know, the, these particles. What we like to do um, is to take advantage of the ability of the virus to infect the cells, but we modify the virus in this way. So I like to think about a virus as a, an envelope that contains genetic information, what we have been uh, able to do, we just kept the envelope and replaced the genetic information of the virus with the genetic information of the gene, like the beta globin gene, that's important to introduce in the patient cells so that this, the cells will be able to make a new hemoglobin and the rest cells will not sickle. So the, the process is really pretty much using the 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 ability of the virus to inf introduce genetic information, but trick the virus so that the cells will acquire the genetic information that will cure the cells of the patient. That's really amazing technology. And I mm -hmm. love the way you would describe that is that the, the virus does, is, is, is rendered in a, unable to hurt the patient, but it knows how to deliver itself to the body through this envelope. It, it, it carries the new gene that's the good gene replacing the bad gene. And it sounds really simple, but I know your work, having visited your lab, is very complex with all kinds of complex-looking equipment and, and people working there. Has there been a time in your career that you can describe, a real breakthrough moment 
that was sort of an aha that you know, wow, I'm really onto something now? Yeah, so the I think one of the most exciting moments in my scientific career has been when after we generated this the first vector and you know a vector that we would like to use for the clinical trial, and we um, utilized some some uh, utilized patient cells, and and we were able to see that after infusion of the vector in these cells, we were able to make normal hemoglobin and prevent the cells from sickling. For us, that was was a, a very important moment because it was indirect proof that if we can put the vector in into the patient cells um, in a clinical setting, hopefully we'll see these normal red cells produce and, 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 and obviously, hopefully uh, cure these patients. That's really amazing technology. And if it weren't for that breakthrough, you and I wouldn't be here talking today about the possibility of curing sickle cell disease, which to me is so exciting having been a nurse at one point um, in my career and seeing children in sickle cell, with sickle cell disease be in such incredible pain and seeing how debilitating that is. You talked about stroke and all types of different um, uh, potential side effects. So um, it's really exciting that you've done this. Um, so Dr. Pronto, I'm going to talk, talk with you now. Um, so you also are working <clears throat> on a cure for sickle cell disease, but you have a very different approach. And you're a surgeon, so <laughs> I'd really love to hear, before we talk about your approach, how did a surgeon, a general surgeon, decide to work in this field? <laughs> so it's a, it's a great question. I've been, um, I guess it goes back to medical school, to be honest. I've, I was very fortunate in medical school to take some time off and uh, do some research with Dr. Alan Flake at CHOP. Um, who many people would say is the father of our field for uh, trying to treat sickle cell before birth in babies. Uh, and I took that year off not knowing what I would go into, whether I would go into general pediatrics or general surgery or full-time research. And that year, uh, working under Dr. Flake, but more importantly, interacting with everybody in the lab and other people throughout CHOP totally inspired me that it's possible to do both, to become a surgeon um, and spend a lot of time clinically taking care of patients in the operating room, but at the same time be involved in you know this very innovative, uh, interesting research like Dr. Ravel's research um, to try to tackle uh, other diseases which might not be directly related to surgery, but, um, but because of the fetal center at CHOP and our uh, commitment and CHOP's commitment to um, helping to treat babies with genetic and congenital um, diagnoses before birth, uh, as surgeons, we are, we are able to kind of take on these challenges and do research in that area. So you need a surgical technique in order to do what you do. So let's, let's explain for the audience yeah. what that actually is. Yeah, so our, the, uh, the area of research that we are interested in is doing a bone marrow transplant, um, similar to what Dr. Ravella described but doing it to a fetus or giving it the fetus the bone marrow transplant before birth. Um, the reason why we think that may be beneficial for diseases like sickle cell disease is that the fetus uh, is still developing, and we like to take advantage of the normal developmental properties of the fetus. So most importantly, uh, the immune system of the fetus is very immature and doesn't function like your or my immune system. And so like Dr. Ravella mentioned, one of the big challenges with uh, treating patients with sickle cell disease after birth is finding a matched donor. And then even if you find a matched donor, which is very difficult to do, the, the patient still requires 
some pretty significant medications to suppress their immune system and knock out their own bone marrow so that the transplant will work. Because the fetus's immune system is immature, um, we don't have to necessarily find a matched donor, and you can do it without giving the fetus the toxic um, conditioning. So that's the science behind it or the rationale behind it. And then the surgical technique is um, you have to f- there needs to be a way of getting the bone marrow cells into the fetus. And this is, like a lot of this work, requires a huge team. And, um, you know, at CHOP, it's led by Dr. Alan Flake, who's the director of the center. And together with MFMs, um, other researchers, we've developed techniques to deliver the cells that we want to transplant into the fetus, either directly into their blood supply or um, into their peritoneal cavity using ultrasound-guided techniques to, to efficiently give them the cells. Right into the womb. Right into using the womb. ultrasound. Yeah, using ultrasound. So it would be as if uh, it would be using the same exact techniques as mothers have for getting an amniocentesis done. You know, you use an ultrasound, find the correct place, and pass a very uh, thin needle into the into the womb to to perform the injection. So, as a general surgeon, um, are, are you part of the team that does fetal surgery at CHOP? I, I am. I'm very. Uh, I feel very lucky and fortunate to be part of that team. It's a uh, it is a great team. It's uh, the other members of the team are are I would venture to say I'm probably the most junior guy on the team, um, and I'm very fortunate to have the the more senior members of the team who have been my mentors for for years and inspirations to me. Well, junior, but you're our future, right? Well, as we as we're just at one stage in, in in terms of innovation, and hopefully, with you know your commitment, we'll be in a completely different place in ten or twenty years, and. So for those who are listening, they may not actually know what fetal surgery is. And I think it's probably important to mention because it gives you, uh, you know, sort of your dexterity in working with the fetus, which is not something that your average general pediatric surgeon would have. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So, um, so at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, we have the largest fetal treatment and diagnosis center in the world, I would venture to say. Um, and we, we see uh, moms that are carrying fetuses that have been diagnosed with a problem before birth. Uh, most of those problems do not require a fetal surgery or any intervention before birth, but we are um, very fortunate to be able to uh, counsel these families and give them expectations as to what to expect uh, after birth and what treatments might be required after birth for a variety of, of disorders. There are very few um, cases where there are where they are more amenable to treating the disorder before the baby is born, and this again requires a huge team. Um, and some of those procedures, or some of the the disorders, is is the most common one is uh, spina bifida, where there is a neural tube defect, um, and this is something that Dr. Adzik, uh, our our uh, chief and uh, leader, has uh, studied and performed for the, his entirety of his career. Uh, using, um, again, as a big team, we uh, operate on the fetus before birth to close the spinal cord defect. Uh, after closing the spinal cord defect, the fetus is returned to the womb, uh, and the goal is then to keep the mother pregnant as long as possible. And there have been studies shown that uh, closing the uh, defect before birth significantly improves the functional outcomes of these babies after they're born. Um, and so that's you know, that, that's just one example of, of a fetal surgical technique that, uh, that is regularly occurring uh, at CHOP, you know, on a weekly basis. Yeah, people, I think, are really astounded that 
we actually do surgery on fetuses before they're born. Yeah. It's really all part of, you know, trying to to really um, focus on uh, on to the extent we can to diagnosing babies in utero so that we can do everything we can to treat them, which is exactly what you're doing with uh, the stem cell transplants with sickle cell disease. Uh, now, we, this, is, this cure isn't yet in, in people, in children, um, but have you done a stem cell transplant in general? Uh, and maybe you could talk a, lot, a little bit about that. We're in the process of uh, getting the ball rolling for a clinical trial to use in utero stem cell transplantation to treat sickle cell disease. Um, that being said, about 20 years ago, Dr. Flake performed the first in utero stem cell transplantation um, for a different disease, a disease called SCID, Severe Combined Immunodeficiency Disorder. And since that time, a number of different institutions, not very many, but other institutions and people have tried in utero stem cell transplantations. They have not been very successful, um, but that's why over the past 20 years we've done a lot of research um, and through the support of CHOP and, and, uh, and other people, uh, we've been able to advance the field significantly to the point that now we think when we start this clinical trial, it will be successful to be able to provide a cure. That is really encouraging. And, um, you know, even though both of you, Dr. Ravella and, and Dr. Pronto, have different methods to, to um, get to the cure for sickle cell, one in utero and, and one after the child is born, um, you know, you both are, are, are working on science that has been, you've been building on through your careers. Um, Dr. Pronto, I asked Dr. Ravella if, if there was a breakthrough moment in his career. Is, was there a breakthrough moment for you in, you know, you, you mentioned being in Dr. Um, Flake's lab, but there was just, is there a particular moment or something that was sort of a, a moment that, that, that sort of screamed to you that I've got to do this in my career? That whole year that I spent in his lab was, was pretty eye-opening and inspiring in general. And then since that time, there have you know, there have been ups and downs, as there are in any research, where at sometimes you think, will this ever be successful? And I remember there was one experiment where it, the results were uh, totally opposite of what we thought. And then serendipitously, when you looked at it very closely, you, it helped to open our eyes to the fact that um, although we thought that the fetal immune system wasn't going to interfere with the transplant, which is true, it turns out that this experiment showed us that the mother's immune system could have an effect on the transplant. And so, you know, just by looking closely at that experiment, everybody uh, in the field decided it was kind of an aha moment in the field where we thought for the future clinical applications, we now will need to use the mother as the donor, which, um, which will increase the safety of it, will increase the likely success of it, and make it applicable to a larger number of patients. So that's a pretty big breakthrough. Yeah, it was yeah. very cool. And, yeah. and again, it was totally by accident. We expected to see something else. And, you know, we talked about the results time and time again. And then the, the closer we looked into it, uh, it turned out to be very fortuitous. It was an accident, but it was detected by really bright people yeah. who figured <laughs> out that it actually could lead to something, yeah. uh, a, sort of another answer, which is, I think, the beauty of why we have this great um, community of, of, of scientists at, at CHOP. Um, you get funding from CHOP and other places. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as, as we talked about earlier, that Daisy Days has been a month-long fundraising event. Luckily, uh, I'm thrilled to say that the recipients for our Daisy Days uh, this year were the two of you uh, and your work in, in sickle cell research. 
And so tell me what philanthropy might do for your research. Uh, how might it propel it to the next level? Uh, philanthropy is critical to our research. Um, I can tell you without a doubt that without philanthropic support, we would be 10 years behind where we are now. Um, the majority of our work on sickle cell disease and in utero transplants for sickle cell disease is funded by philanthropy and is supported by CHOP as an institution, and we're eternally grateful for that. With funds from Daisy Day um, and other philanthropic funds, we plan on you know, optimizing the protocol that we use uh, to harvest the cells before doing the transplant. You know, in utero transplant will work to cure sickle cell disease in one of two ways. So either a single transplant um, will result in uh, engraftment of the cells at levels that are enough to educate the immune system but not cure the disease so that after the baby is born you can give them a second transplant without the harsh conditioning drugs. You know, that's great, but the ideal way of treating it in the home run would be a single in utero transplant would result in high enough levels of engraftment that that baby is born and is cured and never needs another treatment afterwards. And right now, um, a lot of the studies show that we can get the first way, where we can get at lower levels of engraftment that can then be used to, to, to treat the disease in a much less toxic, much safer way. But with continued funds, we're studying ways to optimize the transplant so that we can hit the home run and, and cure the, the disease with one single transplant. So if it's very inspiring to me to hear that because I, as I'm out there in the community talking to people, and I, I can say that if you know, we are able to, to um, support your work philanthropically, that we might you know, cut the time in half again. And instead of 10 years, it'll be five years or yeah. two and a half years or, or it, you know, just really get us to that next level um, much sooner. So that's um, really helpful for me to hear and for, for our listeners to hear. Well, thank you. We're obviously very appreciative of all the help that, and the support that you and the institution and our, you know, our, our, our listeners and our supporters have given us. So, Dr. Ravella, um, I, I talked about the importance of fueling your work um, through donations for philanthropy. Tell me what that might do for you in, in getting your work to the next level. I want to echo what um, uh, Dr. Parento just said. How important is the philanthropy? Philan the philanthropic support for our work. For instance, right now, uh, we believe that we have new tools that have the possibility to cure patients with sickle cell anemia. However, in order to go to clinical trial, we need to develop a series of uh, protocols and, um, and develop toxicology, st toxicology studies that need to be reviewed by the Food and Drug Administration. So in order to get to that point, uh, we need to uh, you know, prove that this protocol works over and over, and this is going to, require, going to require a lot of support in terms of like equipment, people that need, we need to hire, administrative uh, personnel that need to revise the protocol, and and this normally is not um, you know the the source to support this kind of study normally doesn't come from federal grants and stuff like that. So it's very difficult to move forward, even if you have a very good product. And so the philanthropic support is essential and very important for us to be able to get to the FDA and prove to them that we, are, uh, we, we have a good chance to cure these patients. Um, of course, at the FDA, the, the, major, you know, the major goal of the FDA is not only that we have a good product, but also we not harm the patients, right? And so all these studies need to be done, and they're very expensive. And I also want to stress what one concept that Dr. Parenteau just uh, 
mentioned previously, yeah, we, we, are, we think that we're getting ready to clinical trial. We think we, we have a product that hopefully can help the patients. But there is a, already, we're already thinking about the next step. So, um, you know, the, the, the trial potentially is taking the bone marrow cells from the patient, treat them in a petri dish, and put them back in, in the patient bone marrow. All this seem, seems relatively simple, but requires medication and hospitalization, etc. What we're already thinking and would like to develop, obviously, as a second step, is what I call gene therapy in appeal. So if we prove that this product works, then what's the next step to make this product available to all the patients, minimizing the requirement for hospitalization and medication and, and helping patients are not just a job, but in many other places, especially in countries where maybe there are no jobs, right? Where there are no institutions that are so well equipped with all the personnel that ha are able to perform these kind of sophisticated uh, approaches. So we would like really to move in that direction. And in, normally in the first stages, philanthropic support is essential because normally you have an idea and, and no data yet because you don't really have the money to, to prove that, 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 that idea. So the, philanth the philanthropy is very important for these two steps of our, our work. And I'm so glad you mentioned the worldwide impact of the type of work that you're doing. It's not just children that are coming to Children's Hospital, but our researchers are developing treatments and cures that will impact children around the world. So for those philanthropists who are interested in having worldwide impact for generations to come, the type of work that you're doing uh, is something that they can get involved in in order to have that impact. And so I'm, I'm really glad that, that you mentioned that. So it's really been such a, a pleasure to talk with the two of you. Um, I'm really inspired by your work, and it helps me uh, to get up the next day and to come to work and do everything I can and to, to raise awareness and funds um, to support your work to continue to get it to the next level. Let me ask uh, one question. Do the two of you get a chance to work together very often? Uh, this is a great question. We just met yesterday unrelated to to our session here today about another project. We had emailed each other over the weekend asking about a different mouse model of uh, alpha thalassemia, another um, hemoglobinopathy that could be treated with the similar things. And then on the cab right over here, we were sh shooting uh, different ideas by each other about ways to work together. Yes, absolutely. I, I found it, you know, um, Dr. Parento fascinating. And, and another thing that we were discussing, for instance, is can we combine uh, for instance, the tools that I'm generating, like the new antiviral vectors and new gene therapy vectors, to um, help somehow the infusion of the stem cells in the utero. You know, if, if we can, for instance, use the stem cells of the utero itself, modified by the vector, would that would that be sufficient, or can we inject this the vac the virus directly with that technology that Dr. Paranto is uh, developed to treat the utero also with uh, with these tools? So obviously, I don't have an answer to say what is going to be in the most yeah. effective way, but the fact that we we're discussing and we we can compare, you know, um, techniques and and maybe come out with something novel that you know is the is the consequence of including all this knowledge together that would be fantastic. Well, it sure sounds like a good idea to me, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think you hit on the point that. Um, having each of you have really different backgrounds, but also committed to curing the same diseases, 
um, is a way to really cross-fertilize in this CHOP community where you get to, to, to be together. And, and whether it's in the back of a cab or it's in your high-tech labs at CHOP, um, I hope you'll continue that, that cross-fertilization and that collaboration on your, on your research. It's, it's what makes the CHOP community very rich. Well, thank you both, um, Dr. Pronto and, and Dr. Ravella. It's been such a pleasure to hear a little bit more. And I, you know, I get to see you every now and then at work and hear a little bit about your work, but to hear about um, how exciting these breakthroughs are that you're working on. And um, I will, as CEO, commit to supporting you and helping you to get to that next level. And hopefully we'll get, you know, to that next level in less than 10 years and in, in the work that you're doing and we'll, we'll get to the gene therapy moon which i think is all, everybody's uh, everybody's goal i hope you'll tune in for future podcasts to learn more about the latest breakthroughs at children's hospital of philadelphia and the people who support them to learn more about chop visit chop.edu giving at children's hospital of philadelphia we make breakthroughs every day i'm madeline bell and thank you for listening. Thank you.